My brother's like white Rastafarian Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> Good. Hello. Welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we unleash ultraviolence against unarmed holiday spirits, one issue at a time. My name is Mike Thompson, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, the cruelest of carolers, Jessica Frazier. I am cruel, but only in the sense that I don't really like Christmas. <laughs> Fair. You're the one who roots for Ebenezer Scrooge not to change at the end of uh, A Christmas Carol? Dude, I'm, I'm waiting for Marley to kill that motherfucker in his sleep. Ah, <laughs> uh, man. How are you doing tonight? I'm good. It's like, you know, 6.30 and I'm drinking a cup of coffee. So if that tells you anything. Yep. Yeah, I, that's all you have to say. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? I'm fine. That's that's like the time when one of my coworkers was like, Oh, like, how's your morning going so far? And I'm like, well, it's 10 a.m. and I'm on my third big gulp of coffee and uh, and I ate a Hot Pocket for breakfast. So how does that sound to you? And she was like, not good. And I'm like, correct. <laughs> it weaves a tapestry. It does. <laughs> yes. I'm painting you a word picture. <laughs> well, if you are new to the show, the purpose of this podcast is to celebrate comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We like to look at their weirdest, coolest, and silliest moments, as well as examine how they are woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. And if you are enjoying the show so far and you want to help us grow, it's always a huge help if you're willing to rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts, because that actually does help with discoverability. Also, we're not on Spotify, so I feel like uh, we could use the growth on Apple. We're not on Spotify. People ask us, and I'm like, find us somewhere else. You love me, find me somewhere else. Yeah, sorry guys. They uh they backed the wrong horse during COVID and I just I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't bring myself to like stay on there. It's left a also, really they... bad taste in our mouths that we haven't been able to get over. And you know what? Not gonna lie, we're kind of grudgy bitches. Also, they are laying off a ton of people right now. Like it it's oh. real recent news where I think like this week they laid off something like fifteen percent of their workforce, which is thousands of people. This is what I was literally just yeah. griping to you about. Yeah. But yeah, anyway. <laughs> Corporations, I swear. I know, right? So this week we are talking about DC's 1991 holiday one-shot, the hyper-violent Lobo Paramilitary Christmas Special. Jessica's just shaking her head at me in the video feed. I'm not ready. <laughs> you aren't ready. <laughs> I don't think anybody's ready for this if they're going in cold. Oh, but before that, what is one cool thing that you have read or watched lately? Well, I think we're kind of rolling on the same track here that I've been playing something. Ooh, what are you playing? I jumped back into Pokemon Go mm. at the urging of a It friend. always sucks people back in, man. It's I'm back. Back again, bitches. Yeah, I, you know, I was going to say maybe I'll put my little QR code on our on our site, people can find me and be friends yeah, with sure. me. Yeah, sure. I can throw that up there, no problem. Yeah, we'll throw it on. We'll throw it on on the soch on the soch for you guys if you want to be friends with me on the pokey. But yeah, no, I've been playing that. Um, one of my friends who's in Southern California was like, "Be my friend on Pokemon," and I was like, "Gosh darn it, I'm in." <laughs> Sarah and I used so. to do that on our lunch breaks at work. We would walk around our area and go hit all the Pokestops. We were that gross you know, couple. We would was... go for a dog walk at lunch and play Pokemon Go. 
I mean, it's fun. It's yeah. fun. You just hatch an eggs casually, catching some pokies. It's great. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So that's what I've been up to. It's it's a lot of fun. There's a few new things. There's a lot more things that you can do. I'm out in the sticks and they're every once in a while, mm-hmm. like a little Pokemon will show up and I'm kind of like flying with nothing out here. But they have some things that you can do when you're just in a place that isn't super populated. They got a and, lot like, better about battles that. and, you know, there's some like some of the team rocket stuff kind of like you can mm-hmm. do. And so it's, it's good. It's good. Um, they've done quite a few updates since I played it last. Yeah. I played it when it launched and then I stopped playing after I got enough Magikarp to evolve into a Geodos. Oh, honestly, it really helped that I was dating someone who was in San Francisco. And so I was taking the ferry in every day or every yeah. other day. And yeah, the, the ferry building just had so many Pokestops to hit. Like yeah. that was monumentally helpful. But yeah, I got out of it for a few years. Sarah and I got back into it for a while and it was like a much more robust system. And then I got bored again and apparently they really made it a much more kind of like rural friendly game when COVID hit because suddenly it was like, you know, you couldn't have people gathering together. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. 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 Wow. Cool. Well, what about you? Sarah and I just finished our first playthrough of Baldur's Gate 3. And, like, you know, we talked about that a bit, about how we were planning to play it on the PS5 together. Yeah. Back when we covered Baldur's Gate in September. Uh, I think September, late August, something like that. Something like that. God, was it that long ago? Yeah, but so, yeah, we played it on the PS5. We ended up ripping through most of it while Sarah was out for a couple of weeks recovering from surgery. Yeah, we played as a drow bard who was a bit of a Swiss army knife character. I can see how the game loosely ties into that last comic series from IDW that we talked about on that episode. But like this gameplay adventure felt really special. Like I've been talking to a lot of friends who have also been playing it about the different quests that we encountered and how we solve different puzzles and dilemmas and nobody really has done the same thing which is really cool it's like we all dealt with a lot of the same things but we dealt with them in very different ways and a lot of times it had very different results which was really neat it's oh, it's just that's cool it's stunning at how unique things feel for everyone and i mean it's no wonder that it won game of the year at the game awards like a couple of days ago from when we're recording this hmm. and then we played it and we got to the ending right after they launched the big patch number five, which had like an epilogue that it feels exceptionally meaningful where you get to sit there and see a lot of the, the ramifications from your decisions, which was really neat. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we're planning to go through it again with a different character and try to do things a bit differently. Like we're probably going to still be a, you know, a good character and we actually really liked playing as a drow. So we'll probably stay that, but we'll do a totally different class and, different romance options and all that. But yeah, it's really awesome. You know, it's a very unique experience and it's so rare to have something this just kind of like polished and cool come along. Very nice. It sounds like you guys have really been enjoying that. I'm glad. Yeah. So how do you feel about talking about the Lobo paramilitary Christmas special? Uh, Let's do it. (laughs) You look hesitation, right? It's the hesitation. (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. Okay, so before we get started, had you ever heard of Lobo before now? Never in my life. (laughs) Okay. 
I ha- I literally uh, came in here so fucking fresh. I had no idea what to expect. Which is so wild to me because like as someone who really got into comics in the early 90s, he was like he was just everywhere. Like he was a character that like existed very much in the DC canon zeitgeist. We're just going to touch briefly on the character's history. Honestly, if you are listening to this episode and you want to learn more about him, I highly recommend heading over to the podcast Comic Book Keepers and checking out their recent episode about Lobo. It's a really excellent deep dive into the main man that'll bring you up to speed. Uh, And also Lance and Chris are awesome and very engaging. So go check them out. So Lobo first appeared in June 1983 in Omega Men number three, and he was created by Roger Slifer and Keith Given. Slifer was a comics writer and editor during the 70s and 80s. Not too long after creating Lobo, though, he left DC and then he started working for Sunbow Entertainment, which was an animation studio responsible for a number of iconic Saturday morning cartoons in the 80s. We actually talked a bit about them in our first episode ever, where we were talking about yeah. Saturday morning cartoons and how they tie into comic books. He eventually went on to become a supervising producer, story editor, and writer for the animated television program Gem and the Holograms, <laughs> nice. which, you know, was a massive part of my childhood. Yep. Yeah, he also worked on shows like G.I. Joe Extreme, My Little Pony and Friends, Transformers, Street Fighter, Conan the Adventurer, and Bucky O'Hare. And he also co-produced the first season of Yu-Gi-Oh! for Four Kids Entertainment in the U.S. So he might not be a household name with a lot of comic book fans these days, but the man had a sizable impact across like an entire era of the pop culture landscape. Yeah, those are all very big names. So <laughs> Exactly. And Giffen, meanwhile, was a comics industry legend. He was an artist and writer who also co-created Jaime Reyes, The New Blue Beetle, and Rocket Raccoon. He was also known for having a pretty offbeat sense of humor. And you can definitely see that when you look at some of the other characters he created, like Trencher and Heckler and Ambush Bug. Giffen's often recognized for his work with DC Comics, especially when he was basically in charge of all the various Justice League books from the late 80s to the mid-90s. And... Those books were largely fun and funny, and they gave us moments that are still a part of comics pop culture, such as when Batman knocked out Green Lantern and Guy Gardner with one punch. Like people still reference that. But, totally. But also, nobody seemed more surprised by Lobo's success than Giffen. In 2006, Newsarama published an interview with him where he said the following I have no idea why Lobo took off. I came up with him as an indictment of the Punisher Wolverine badass hero prototype, and somehow he caught on as the high violence poster boy. Go figure. Yeah, that quote (laughs) has been reprinted in so many different places. It's like even on the official Wikipedia page for Lobo, and it was also cited in the American Comic Book Chronicles when I was reading up on that for this episode. All right. Now, both of Lobo's creators have passed away since he was created. Mm. Slifer was pretty grievously injured in a hit and run incident that left him in institutionalized care until he passed in 2015. And then Giffen passed away just a couple of months ago from a stroke at the age of 70. So, mm. you know, it's uh it's a little bittersweet now reading all this stuff because yeah. the men who created him are no longer with us. Yeah. Ahead of this episode, I went back and reread some of Lobo's early appearances, including the Omega men. It's really interesting to go back to that series because This was a series from the early 80s, and the first five or six issues were printed without the Comics Code Authority seal, which means that it was more 
adult in nature. So there's like more violence and language, not to mention there's like a lot of implied nudity, which was really kind of interesting. It's, it's like, you'll see like characters naked in bed, like sitting up and then like, you know, their arms are tastefully placed and stuff like that, but it's more than you would see. Okay. Right. And they also have really high production values. Like the paper stock is thicker than the standard pulp paper that comics were being printed with, which means the colors still, you know, really pop, even though the, the issues are 40 years old now. And when Lobo shows up, he's pretty goofy looking like he's still got the chalk white skin and red eyes, but he's wearing a purple and gold leotard and it just looks very silly. He's also like a little bit more suave and methodical when he appears in the Omega Men. Then that, you know, it's like it's very different from who he is later on. He's more mustache twirly than anything else. And then he eventually becomes kind of an ally to the Omega Men. But then after that, he sort of disappeared for a while. And the interesting thing is that. After that, Lobo just wasn't that big of a character in the 80s, but Giffen brought him back for a four-issue arc in Justice League International in 1988, and this run is what established his biker motif. The arc was pretty well-received, and that kicked off what became a surge in popularity for the character. He was suddenly everywhere. He showed up as a special guest in tons of books around this time. He received a 1990 miniseries, which sold well enough that the first issue got a second printing. There were two follow-up miniseries immediately after that. And then he got an ongoing series in 1993 that lasted for 63 issues. But I really started getting into comics right in the middle of all this. And I remember seeing Lobo popping up in just about every DC comic I read. I I never really got it, to be honest. He felt kind of dumb and silly and not really in a way that I was finding appealing. But I don't know. It was this weird blend of like ultraviolence and satire that just didn't quite work for me but i was also you know 11 or 12 and so i think i was just a little bit too young to get what he was satirizing and as a result i was like oh he just feels yeah it may just have been above your head a little bit i hear you yeah but you know it, it clearly gelled with some readers based on his popularity he became one of the most popular characters under dc's banner in the 90s which is you know as we noted kind of antithetical to giffen's whole point with the character I will note Lobo is directly tied to one of my favorite gimmick comics of all time, though. There is a variant of Superman, the Man of Steel, number 30 from 1994. It came polybagged with a sheet of they're called vinyl clings, but they're basically like kind of like static vinyl cling stickers. Yeah. (laughs) And the whole thing is that you can take all these different stickers and put together a custom fight scene between Superman and Lobo above Metropolis. Oh, it is that's fun. It, it is so goofy and I love it. But yeah, he was so popular. There was even a fighting game in development from Ocean Software around 1996. And it got to the point where a couple of magazines were given review copies and the reviews were apparently pretty terrible. And unsurprisingly, the game was actually canceled and it never got released. I watched a playthrough of a build on YouTube of the Super Nintendo version, and it's it's really not good. But one of the uh. first fights is with a knife-wielding Kris Kringle. So there's that. Here we go. (laughs) It all ties in. Yeah. And then on top of that, during Lobo's ongoing series run, DC was just pumping out tie-in specials and crossovers starring the Bounty Hunter. I did a quick search on Comic Book Realm, and there were 25 different titles starring Lobo with his name listed in the title just from the 1990s. And If you count all the stuff that's come out since the 90s, it's probably double that number. Like, I don't care that much. I didn't calculate it out. But just, you know, dude's popular. I just don't quite get it. Okay, Lobo, calm down. 
Yeah. I also have really wound up with a bunch of issues of his, like somehow I have three copies of his first appearance. How? I don't know. Like I, <laughs> I don't get it. Like I, <laughs> okay. A friend of mine gave me his original miniseries too. So I've got that sitting okay. in my collection. And then this as well. Uh, it's yeah. It's kind of wild. <laughs> yeah. Uh, weird. Uh, yeah. You know, I think it's just, I, I think my collection is at the point that it's just manifesting certain issues where I'm like, do I own that? I don't remember buying that. And then I go and check it out. I'm like, oh, apparently I own this. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think you have so many comics they've started reproducing on their own. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so one of those specials was the Lobo Paramilitary Christmas Special, which came out shortly after his original miniseries. The issue is cover dated December 1991, and Keith Giffen provided the plotting and breakdown. Simon Bisley did the art, and Alan Grant handled dialogue. Laverne Kinzierski did colors, Gaspar lettered, and Bad Dan Raspler served as editor. So before we go any further, I need to note something. Although this book is pretty well known, there is shockingly little documentation on it. One of my go-tos for stuff from this era is... American Comic Book Chronicles, the 1990s. They mention it in a single line. DC Comics, year by year, doesn't even note it, although the book does mention Lobo's cameo in a Justice League story arc from around the same period. And the DC Comics Encyclopedia doesn't call the book out either. It's just, it's interesting because this comic is actually a major part of comics culture. People like recognize it, talk about it, but it's not really one that's examined in a historical context, you know? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Kind of weird. Yeah. So this is a one shot. It's only 30 pages long. The story opens on an unnamed planet two nights before Christmas. The dialogue is actually really confusing about this because it's later made it seem like it's actually taking on Christmas Eve. But in the opening argument, they're talking about how Christmas is two mornings from now. So, mm. huh? Okay. We are introduced to the unhappy couple Orifice and Ferret Thung. They are arguing about how Ferret has been fired from his job a week before Christmas, and thus they aren't able to afford presents for their 10 children. It's implied that on this planet, children who don't receive presents will murder their parents pretty gruesomely, like as Orifice. Yeah. And then as Orifice and Ferret continue to shout at each other, there's a knock at the door and they open it to find the book, The Lobo Xmas Sanction, sitting on the ground. The book's intro says that it should scare the kids so badly that they will never want to celebrate Christmas ever again, which is backed by an ironclad guarantee. So the couple starts to read the book, which opens with a full page spread of Lobo and Dog, spelled D-A-W-G, his pet bulldog, and the line, once upon a time, there was a really cool dude. (laughs) (laughs) So Lobo and Dog show up at a bar to meet someone who's interested in hiring Lobo for a contract. The client is actually a very drunk Easter bunny who says he represents a group of holiday mascots and wants to take a hit out on Santa Claus because he is making all the other holidays look bad. Lobo agrees to the job and then sets off to the stronghold of Santa Claus, which exists in the land of everlasting ice. Santa is described as, quote, a brutal dictator repeatedly slammed by Amnesty International. He ran his empire with an iron fist, planned malnutrition, kept his army small in stature, but fighting fit and fierce as ferrets. And it's also noted that he has a slick PR department and does a once a year charity splurge that keeps his public image squeaky clean. And from there, Lobo 
begins his extremely violent infiltration of the fortress. He sets off some alarms when he dynamites his way past the front gate, the alarm sound, and we see a new higher elf asking if that's signaling a break, but it turns out that there's only one per year on Midsummer's Eve and how they really need to get a union. Security identifies Lobo as, quote, the naughtiest one. And then Lobo walks into an ambush where he's surrounded by a bunch of crackshot elves. After he refuses to surrender, the elves open fire, and it turns out they have toy rifles that fire bottle corks on string. And so Lobo immediately guns them down while singing his own version of Christmas carols. And it's, like, really graphic. Like, these are, yeah. in a couple of cases, this is, like, you know, very large panels, full page spreads. Heads are getting blown off. We see elf anatomy flying everywhere. Like it's graphic. And we also see yeah. dog eating elves pretty violently. Lobo busts into Santa's inner sanctum, which I'm going to say is decked out like a tacky version of Versailles. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's wild. That's that. Yeah. And then he finds Santa waiting for him, smoking a cigar in an easy chair, hanging out with the gorilla that he introduces as his quote roommate. The gorilla's name is Kong. Of course. Lobo pulls his gun on Santa and tells the man that he's paying him back for a miserable childhood. Santa basically goads Lobo, saying it's a hardly fair fight for the hero to gun down an unarmed mythic symbol of the holidays, but he's down to do a one-on-one fight, and Lobo agrees to that. So Santa starts shoving furniture out of the way so they have room to maneuver. He pulls out a couple of Gurkha Kukri knives, which are like, they're kind of like machetes, but they've got a curve to them, like, you know, where... Where if you're holding them in your hand, like, you know, it's going to go straight and then point down after a little bit. And then they get into a pretty brutal knife fight. So for the first page or so, Santa is able to hold his own pretty well. And then Lobo gets the upper hand and deals old St. Nick a couple of mortal blows. We see his eye hanging out of his socket by the end. <laughs> like, mm. Yeah, it's pretty rough. Yeah. And Santa basically says, oh, maybe we can work out a deal. And Lobo says he's already been paid by the rabbit and he already delivers. And then he decapitates Santa. And then there's a bunch of penguins who were celebrating the death of the tyrant. Lobo mm-hmm. continues to explore Santa's lair, comes across a closet full of sex toys, which okay. And then he finds what I'm going to call Santa's war room, which includes a bunch of databanks of naughty and nice lists. Lobo views the naughty list as being full of potential competition. So he then converts Santa's workshop into a munitions factory and builds a stockpile of bombs. He goes out to the reindeer stables and asks Rudolph to guide his sleigh tonight and Rudolph refuses. So <laughs> Lobo guns the reindeer down off camera. Like we just see all this from the exterior of the stables with the dialogue bubbles. Yeah. Them. The rest of the terrorized reindeer immediately agree to pull the sleigh, which gives us the final scene of Lobo flying over city, smoking cigars with dog and Kong. The gorilla is dropping H bombs on homes of the naughty. And then we cut back to the thungs who are reading the story and overjoyed at the idea of terrorizing their children with this as it means they won't be torn apart in the morning. But then Ferret turns to the last page, which contains the message, this book is only good for one read. Gotcha, sucker. And then it disappears in a puff of smoke. Orifice is freaking out about how the kids are going to murder them. And then Ferret pulls out a shotgun out of a cabinet and goes upstairs to murder his sleeping children while carolers are singing outside. The end. Yeah, it's a whole thing. Yeah, we're going to talk about it. (laughs) But... I don't know how successful this book was as the comic sales tracking site Comicron doesn't have data for comics from 1991. 
It's often cited as one of the iconic Lobo stories, though, that people need to read if they want to get into the character. So I'm assuming it sold pretty decently since this was, I think, his first one shot special. And as I noted earlier, he went on to have a lot of those across the 90s. And, you know, on top of that, this was right in the middle of the speculation bubble when comics would be canceled if they're selling under 30,000 copies an issue. So, yeah. Also, it's a low-key spec book because this is the first appearance of Dog, who went on to be a regular in the main series. He dies towards the end of that. I think I think Lobo actually kills him. But then he has been brought back a couple of decades later, so I don't know what's going on with him. Oh, all right. But this book is also super easy to find for almost nothing. Like, if I wanted to, I think I could get, like, a 9-8 slab of it and pay maybe 50 bucks, maybe. And if you want to get a raw copy of it, it's at most $10 if you're buying it on eBay. So yeah, there was also a fan film adaptation of the comic that was put out in 2002 and was part of the American Film Institute Director's Studies Program. It stars Andrew Bernarski, a bodybuilder who had some pretty mainstream success. He played Zangief in the Street Fighter movie around the same time as this comic and also played Leatherface in the 2003 reboot of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It also features voice actor Tom Gibbis as the Easter Bunny and Michael V. Allen as Santa Claus. What's interesting about this is that it apparently got made for a budget of $2,400 and the people involved just donated their time. So kind of interesting. You can find oh, it wow. on YouTube. Yeah. yeah. And they're not really like high res copies, but, you know, you get the idea while you watch it. The movie is only like yeah. 15 minutes long, maybe. I think that might even be a little bit more than it actually runs. It's a mostly faithful adaptation of the comic, but it's also very stripped down. It eschews the framing story involving the thongs and the book. And instead of a drawn out knife fight, Santa gives Lobo a maybe magical snow globe because it was a gift that he wanted, but never got it as a kid because he was perpetually on the naughty list. Santa tries to shoot Lobo in the back, but Lobo shoots him first. And the other big difference is Santa Claus captures the Easter bunny. It's revealed that he neutered him and then apparently ate the Easter bunny's testicles because they're considered a delicacy. Yeah. Yeah. And anyway, Lobo shoots Santa. Then he shoots the Easter bunny. And that's the end of the movie. Like, I don't know. So ridiculous. Yeah. So let's talk about this real quick. Like, how did you feel about this comic overall? Well, it was a wild ride. I, you know, like I said, I didn't know the character. Yeah. So I didn't know how to approach him. Like, he's definitely, you know, like you said, more of an anti-hero, which doesn't always land. Mm-hmm. And the premise was like, for me, I'm like, who are you? Like, this is, this is shaky. Like, you're just out to like cause mayhem, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. But I mean, it was, yeah, it was a wild ride. I'll just say that. Yeah, it's uh, like talking about it. I'm like kind of enjoying the memory of it a little bit more because I'm like, this is a batshit. <laughs> this feels kind of like, did you ever see the movie Drop Dead Gorgeous? Yes. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, Drop Dead Gorgeous is a mockumentary about beauty pageants in like small town Midwest America. And it stars Kirsten Dunst and Denise Richards and Kirstie Alley and Allison Janney. And I think Ellen Barkin is also in it. Like it's, oh, wow. it's actually like a really big cast. They just, they weren't that big back then like this is right dunston richards this was like some of their first roles also amy smart i think is in it as well like i don't think about it but there's a whole side plot where like kirsten dunst's mom is you know an alcoholic and she falls asleep in her trailer and it burns down because her cigarette that she was smoking dropped out of her hand 
and she had a beer can in her hand and it fused to her hand. So then for the rest of the movie, we see her and she's got this like fused beer can with her hand. So it's like, she's at one point like dancing around and she's waving her hand and she's like, you know, it's just this like weird, this <laughs> like I'm giggling as I talk about this, but like you watch it and you're just like, yeah. and it's like so off-putting because it looks, it's like fully grotesque where it's like a fused metal yeah. can to a hand and you're just like, oh yeah. God. But like talking about it, it's really funny. And I feel the same way about this comic book where I'm like, it's really mm. funny to talk about and describe. Fair. But reading through it, I was like, I don't know, man. Like, mm, I, there were a lot of I don't know, man parts for me, too. <laughs> yeah. So I'm very torn on it. I it's hard to take seriously, but it also hits very differently 30 plus years later. And I think it would work actually a lot better without the framing story that they use. Because the whole yeah. idea of like about this couple that hates their children and then gunning down the kids at the end, this was right before mass shootings really became a thing. Yeah. And so I think back then it worked okay. Like it it worked in that sense because it was just, it was so over the top. But it's kind of like Robocop where you watch it now and you're like, oh, like they're they want to privatize the police and make them all corporate. And you're like, oh, ha ha ha. That's really funny. And you're like, oh, God, okay. Like now it's like this is real. supposed to be satire guys come on like it's not yeah. supposed to be true right yeah and so like i don't know i feel like this is one of those books where i think it probably hit really well when it came out and i think the people that bought it and enjoyed it probably really enjoyed it because also right. bisley's artwork is very kind of surreal like he yeah he was an artist on the sandman as well like his art is very unique and very cool yeah but yeah i don't like I, like, how do you feel about the satire? Because like that's that's this whole book is it's a hyper violent satire of Christmas specials. I mean, I definitely see the satire, but I'm not sure that I would say it like it worked mm. necessarily. Like it was over the top enough for satire, but I think it was pretty gruesome. And to your point, the continuous mass shootings in this country don't help the vibe. And yeah. so I think looking at it as a fresh reader coming in now, it feels a lot different than, you know, to your point that it probably did in the 90s when this wasn't such a prevalent issue. Yeah. So. Yeah. I Like, that's kind of where I am on it. I don't know. But I mean, like, you know, on top of that, like, what do you think works better, the comic or the movie? This was tough. But I think I landed, I was going back and forth, but I think I landed on the movie being better. Okay. And because I don't think that the intro story was needed mm -hmm. you know like the fearing for their lives because they can't buy christmas gifts right although the fear of being less than consumeristic didn't get past me that was very yeah but i think the story flowed a bit better in the movie mm -hmm. yeah it's more streamlined yeah and i do think it's funny how they did the elf makeup like the purposeful like they cheap like kind goblins. of just like, thrown they... on like they, I think it, it better allowed the viewer to understand that this was satire at that point. Yeah, they've got they've got like really gross teeth, too. And like the way that yeah. they've got the lighting and everything. I'm like, they they legit look more like Christmas goblins than elves. But OK. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that ultimately showed the viewer that they didn't need to take that this seriously. But I don't mm. know. I don't know. Yeah, I keep waffling on it. They were both pretty it. wild. I was yeah. waffling too, because like I didn't necessarily dig like the change up with the storyline, because I liked kind of the ending of the other one better in the comic. Yeah, I actually I didn't mind the bit with him like bombing everybody with Santa Slay. I was like, 
Right. Okay. Like I can kind of get behind this, but like, but then it's that framing device. That's what makes the book feel for lack of a better term, kind of icky. Right. And you know, like as we've already noted, like it's just, it's really uncomfortable from today's lens in America. Like, yeah. Especially when I've got kids in school and kids in school these days go through active shooter drills. Right. Like it, it's really hard to separate that. And then, yeah, I don't know. I think the confrontation between Santa and Lobo is actually better in the movie. It, it feels a little more believable in the way it unfolds, but also yeah. the whole bit where they brought the Easter bunny back and he's like, oh, he neutered me. And I'm like, mm, I don't yeah, this. I didn't like that. Yeah. Mm, that just feels kind of unnecessary, but whatever. Yeah. But I mean, like, it felt like a very faithful adaptation. I thought it was, you know, especially considering that it was like a little fan project, basically. I was pretty impressed yeah. with it. Like, I, you know. I didn't realize it was a fan project until you said that. So that was interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very slickly made. Like, that's the thing. Yeah. The director, I can't remember his name now, but he he recently made a documentary about the guy who created the computer models for dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. It's called Jurassic mm-hmm. Punk. It is very oh. good and very interesting. Nice. Yeah. But yeah. So as I said, there is not a lot of information about this book. And this episode is not focusing on the character of Lobo himself other than providing a brief introduction. So this is actually going to be the end of the discussion on this one. Like, yeah, I don't really have a lot more to say. I'm just like, all right, this is an interesting book that that exists out there for the holidays and you can find it pretty cheap. So, So yeah, check it out. (laughs) Yeah. How do you feel about moving on to brain wrinkles? Let's go wrinkle. All right. We are now at Brain Wrinkles, which is the part of the show where we talk about one thing that is comics related or comics adjacent and how it's just been stuck in our head lately. What do you got for me this time? Well, I have been thinking about how much artistry goes into doing the statue recreations for Mm. television shows and for, Mm -hmm. you know, for different fan projects i was watching sideshow had an artist i was about to ask if you were talking about sideshow yeah yeah they were doing hand painting for you know something they were working on and it was just it's so incredibly detailed just the amount of work and the layers and somebody's physically painting all of those things on there and like making all of that look lifelike Mm-hmm. And people are so incredibly talented. So I just thought that was interesting. There was a little clip of an artist hand painting a few of the statues. And it just was just such a cool Wild. process to see. Yeah. So yeah. it just made me really appreciate how talented people are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what about you? I have been thinking about how comic books and video games are intertwined. Like, like this is my Roman Empire. <laughs> like, yeah, it is. It is. You know, one of the first feature articles I ever wrote as a journalist was a look at how comics and video games are are tied together, how they adapt from each other. I spent nearly a decade working in video games, and, and now we host the show. So one of my friends from video games recently compared industry revenue numbers and cited how the video games industry makes like more than three times the revenue of the movie industry. Like it's Oh, I didn't, wow. I'm not surprised, actually. Like, I was just like, yeah, that, that checks out. <laughs> like, you know. Yeah. Like, you know, when I when I stop and think about it, because, like, I I have my name in the credits for 30 plus games now, and some of them were live service games. And I know, A, how many people played those games. And I also know how much revenue they generated. That, that doesn't yeah. surprise me. Okay. But 
On top of that, this was one of the biggest years for like AAA video game releases. And on top of that, we have some pretty big video games coming out both recently and soon that are tied to comics. Spider-Man 2 just launched a couple of months ago. Suicide Squad Killed the Justice League is coming out early next year. The studio behind the Spider-Man games is working on a Wolverine title that is also supposedly coming out next year. And it just got announced at the Game Awards that was a couple of days ago. The studio Arcane, who worked on the Dishonored franchise, which is one of my favorite series of video games, is working on a Blade video game. Like, I told Sarah about oh. that, and she's like, well, you're going to play that. Like, Yeah, you are. Yeah. On top of all of that, the Embracer Group, which I talked about a while ago in another brain wrinkle. It may have been on the Baldur's Gate episode. I can't remember. Mm. They are a media holding company primarily investing in video games, but it also owns Dark Horse Comics. On top of that, with the continuing box office decline of superhero movies, I think we might see more comic-based video games coming to market over the next few years because it probably seems like a safer financial bet. Like... Hmm. Warner Brothers has its own game studios division where they have been making, you know, a ton of like really successful Batman games. They have the injustice fighting games that come out in between Mortal Kombat. It's from the same studio. And those games have been shockingly good, like kind of mm-hmm. surprisingly good. Yeah. Yeah. And then most Marvel games are just raking in the cash these days with the exception of the delightful Midnight Suns game from 2K, RIP. But Disney isn't producing those titles in-house. They're kind of just like licensing it out, but they're they're typically going with pretty, pretty solid studios. So I don't know. I've just I'm wondering if we're gonna see less of an investment in superhero movies and then more of an investment in superhero games instead. It'll be really interesting to watch it unfold in slow motion over the next few years. But yeah, that's what I've been thinking about lately. Well, dang. Yeah, that's a that's a good wrinkle, my friend. Thank you. I, I have yeah. good ones every now and then, you know. but yeah so this is coming out a couple of days before christmas so if you are listening to it right around then happy holidays we hope it's a really good Mm -hmm. one wherever you are we will be back the week after with another dollar bin discovery and then after that i think i actually know what we're talking about next time we're gonna be talking about the series johnny thunder right yeah we are i'm excited but not johnny thunder johnny thunder that'll all make sense later yeah we'll talk about it later on but it caused some confusion on my part originally. But yes, yeah, it did. until then, happy holidays. Stay safe out there and we will see you in the stacks. We will see you for some snacks. <laughs> Thanks for listening to 10 Cent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson, written by Mike Thompson and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who you can find at lookmomdraws.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to tencenttakes.com or shoot an email to tencenttakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter for now. The official podcast account is Tencent Takes, all one word. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica spelled with a K, and Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, Blue Sky, and Hive. A full list of our socials will be listed in the show notes. You can also send us mail now. 
We are at P.O. Box 940 in Pengrove, California, 94951. And Pengrove is spelled P-E-N-N-G-R-O-V-E. Send us stuff. (laughs) If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop.